The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. If you would join with me now in Luke chapter 6, we're going to be looking in verses 37 through 45. And as it just so happens, as you're going through this section of scripture, all of a sudden you're in a series that you could have entitled the misused words of Jesus, because last week we saw a set of words that are generally misused by the world at large, words of Jesus that are generally misused by the world at large, namely, love your enemies. We, last week we had to rescue that phrase from its cultural connotations, because we can't just rely upon what we hear and how people repeat that phrase in our contemporary culture, we have to understand it biblically and in the biblical context. And same with something that we're going to look at today. In fact, I would venture to guess that far more than the phrase, love your enemies, is abused and misused in our culture and even within the confessing church, is the phrase, and here it is, we all know it, judge not, you finish it, you got it, see we all know it, and we all think we know what it means. And the people around us think they know what it means. And so we need to dive in and rescue this phrase as well from its cultural connotations so that we can rightly understand and apply it. It might be the case that you've had this phrase thrown back in your face before, actually. It could be that as you're engaging with friend or family member about particular sins in society that society is currently promoting that... You mention that and mention the, the evilness of that particular sin, and you hear from them, hey, I thought you were a Christian. Doesn't the Bible say, judge not lest you be judged? And you're like, kind of, whoa, you're right, it does. I don't, I don't know how to respond. Or maybe you've been in relationship with a friend or family member, and you've mentioned to them a, a specific sin in their life or their sinful lifestyle, and you're calling them to repentance, and they say to you, hey, I thought you were a Christian. Doesn't the Bible say, judge not, lest you be judged? They might not even mention the Bible. They just might throw that phrase back at you. They've heard it before. They've heard that it comes from Jesus. And it has kind of a powerful effect, doesn't it? Because you're like, well, wait, Jesus did say that. Jesus did say, judge not, lest you be judged. And so you're kind of stymied, almost. You, You don't even know how to respond. You're stopped in your tracks. On the face of it, they seem to be right. Jesus did say, Judge not, and here in our uh, passage today, judge not, and you will not be judged, the less you be judged. That's the King James Version. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Same, Same thing. We need to say this, though, and we need to ask the question, does Jesus here in verse 37, when he says, judge not, and you will not be judged, does he mean to never make or never voice a moral or theological judgment, that we should never make moral or ethical judgments and voice those judgments verbally? Is that what Jesus means here? Well, that's typically how that phrase is used. And I want to just say right out the outset, as we seek to understand what this phrase means, that's not what Jesus is meaning at all. He is not exhorting his disciples to suspend moral and ethical and theological judgment. We need to be emphatic. And the reason we know that is for several reasons. The first is contextual. Okay? 
So this is important because this is not the last time you're going to hear the misuse of that uh, phrase, judge not and you will not be judged. You might even hear it later today or later this week. Is Jesus saying that we cannot make moral or ethical or theological judgments? He is not saying that. We know that because if you look just down a few verses later, something we're going to look at, this will be an actual key to unlocking this passage. He says in verse 42, Peter's already read it. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye, which when you yourself do not see the log in your own eye, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. So actually, the goal, as we'll see, of removing the two by four from your eye is so that you can see clearly to make a moral judgment. So Jesus anticipates that his disciples will be making moral judgments. We also see this in Jesus's ministry by and large. Jesus at every turn is making and voicing moral and ethical and theological judgments. He would confront the religious leaders about their sin. He would confront flagrant sinners with their sin. He could, would confront those who were indifferent to his message. He would confront his disciples. He was making moral judgments and voicing those judgments constantly. He made it clear that there was right and that there was wrong. And he called people to repent from doing wrong and to do what was right. So Jesus' ministry itself does not allow us to conclude that when he says, judge not and you will not be judged, that we are not to make moral, ethical, and theological judgments. Third is the, the apostles' ministry. Similar to Jesus' ministry, they classified certain desires and behaviors as sinful, objectively, morally wrong, and they called their readers and listeners to turn from those sins to Christ. You, just, you, don't, you can't even turn a page in the New Testament without seeing that, of course, Jesus' disciples must make moral judgments. Jesus' apostles would make some very strong, even harsh statements about those who purported to be Christian teachers and yet were leading others astray. You turn to 2 Peter or Jude, for example, and they have some very strong words for false teachers. And then finally, John 7, 24, this is part of Jesus' teaching, but I wanted to group it in its own category because this lays the whole idea that Jesus' disciples are not to make moral judgments to rest. It, he lays this to rest by saying in John 7, 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with righteous judgment. That's a command. That's a command to people to not make superficial, unfounded, unsubstantiated, surface-level judgments. Don't do that. Here's how you make judgments. By righteousness by truth, by knowing what you're talking about. So we're actually commanded by Christ to make moral judgments. And frankly, you can't make it through life. You can't make it through the next five minutes without making moral and ethical and theological judgments. So we conclude, can conclude that when Jesus says, judge not, he certainly does not mean that his disciples are to refrain from making moral, ethical, or theological judgments. Indeed, Hebrews chapter 5 would teach us that it's actually a vital aspect of our growth and holiness that we grow more and more sharp in our own hearts and minds in discerning what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is an error. In fact, spiritual immaturity is 
seen in the way a person is unable to do that, when they are muddled and unable to discern what is right and wrong and what is true and untrue. To say emphatically, definitively, and confidently that there are certain desires and behaviors that are objectively wrong, and that there are certain desires and behaviors that are objectively right, is not a violation of Jesus' statement to judge not. And I hope we've seen that in just that brief glimpse at the immediate context, the broad context of Scripture, and then Jesus' straightforward statement in John 7, 24. So what does Jesus mean then? If, if he doesn't mean that his disciples are to suspend all judgment, what does he mean? Well, here in this passage, verses 37 to 38, we are going to look at Jesus' call for his disciples to have a merciful conduct. Merciful conduct. That's verses 37 and 38. In fact, what I want us to do is look up at verse 36. In your Bibles, if it's like mine, you have a space between verse 36 and 37, and you might even have a subheading that says judging others. That's what mine says. And that's fine. That helps us understand various sections of Scripture. I don't want to throw the ESV under the bus. It's a great translation, and it's very useful sometimes to have these subheadings. What it does, though, is that it makes us believe that there's a hard and sharp break between this passage and the previous passage, which, which there isn't. In fact, it's probably best to read it like this. Be merciful as your father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. This, verse 37, and the commandments here should be seen as a continuation of his previous statements about loving our enemies and loving those who do evil to us. Be merciful even as your heavenly Father is merciful. Judge not and you will not be judged. Be merciful to whom? To everyone, particularly our enemies, as we saw last week. This should be seen as a continuation. So what I, that being the case then, if this is a continuation of what Jesus has just taught, we need to look up and see the connection between the future reference of judge not and you will not be judged and the future reference of what Jesus had already said in verse 35. Let's look up again in verses 35 and following. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. We saw last week that the way you conduct yourself as a believer is evidence that you are a son of the Heavenly Father, or, uh, Heavenly Father, that you are a son of the Most High. Your present conduct is evidence that you are His child. And there will be coming a reward for that conduct, and that reward is in the future when God blesses you and rewards you with a grand reward, the greatest of being Him, Himself. But that reward is future. Similarly, in verse 37, Jesus is saying there is a future reward. Judge not, and you will not be judged for your conduct. And this is what it is. You condemn not, and you will not be condemned. You will forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Each of these statements should be seen as future realities. When God is going to do something to bless you in the future, namely at the final judgment. Question we need to ask, which opens up the meaning here, is 
who will we not be judged by? Well, by God. Who will we not be condemned by? By God. Who will we be forgiven by? By God. That's implicit in the passage. So Jesus is having us look forward and see that our present conduct, it will be evidence of what we will receive in the future. Each of these should be read as future end of the age realities, just like the reward that we saw in verse 35. Judge not and you will not be judged by God in the future. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned by God in the future. The same can be said for the phrase, given it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be, that's future, it will be put into your lap. The imagery here is of a buyer who is in the market and he needs to buy some grain, and he goes in, and what they would do is they would, they would sit down and they would have their garment and they would take their garment and, and they're sitting down and so they have their garment in their, their lap like this and the, the seller would come over and would fill up the measure, whatever that measuring device would be, and then they'd fill it up a little with the grain, shake it down a little bit so you get it down there. We know what that's like, you know, when you're organizing your, your cupboards, when you have flour and you pour in the flour and you shake it down and then you pour in some more, whatever it might be. With us, it's, it's tortilla chips. You pour the tortilla chips in and you shake it down and so you can get as many in and you keep pouring. And so you have a full stock of uh, tortilla chips. Well, that's what he's talking about here. You pour it in, you're shaking it down, you pour it in until actually the buyer would just fill it to the top. God's saying in the future, your, yours is going to overflow. You give and the giving back from God will be an overflow of goodness in the future. The reward for not judging is that you will not be judged by God. The reward for not condemning is that you will not be condemned by God. The reward for, giving, or for forgiving others is that you will be forgiven by God. The reward for generous giving is that you will receive generously from God in the age to come. That's why he adds, for, this, for with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. What does this mean? It means that if you are characterized by not judging others and not condemning others, but are positively characterized by forgiving others and extending generosity, you can expect the same from your Father in the future. You will not be judged or condemned. You will be forgiven, and you will receive divine generosity. Now, this is not salvation by works. Rather, this is a description of how a true disciple lives, and as we will see, it is an inward change that God has wrought in the person that actually produces this kind of life. So this is not salvation by works. What it is, is it is a reflection of how you have been changed on the inside by God. And by this way that you live, you can expect to receive these promises in the future. Judge not, and you will not be judged. But that still doesn't get at exactly what Jesus is saying here, does it? Okay. I do want us to see that these are, that does help us, but we're not all the way there yet. So what is Jesus actually instructing here? First, the phrases judge not and condemn not should be seen together. I think that's really helpful. Jesus says judge not, similar to what he means by condemn not. So when he says judge not, Jesus is referring to personally casting the final verdict on a person's eternal state as though they were beyond the hope of God's mercy. Jesus is referring here to the final judgment. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Those things are going to happen at the final judgment. So when he says judge not or condemn not, he is referring 
personally to your conduct with others and you not casting the final verdict on a person's eternal state as though that person was beyond the hope of God's mercy. And what I find interesting is that Jesus's description of his own ministry helps us understand exactly what he means here. If you turn over to John 3:17, I'm just going to go through these passages passages in John, John 3:17, John 8:15, John 12 47. I'm just going to read through them and then comment on them in a moment. But Jesus actually illuminates what he means by this passage by the way he describes his own ministry. Now, let me show you what I mean here. John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn. That's the same word for judge here. It's the word krino, the same word for judge in verse 37. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, Crino, but whoever does not believe is condemned, Crino, already, because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. Okay? John 8, 15. You judge according to the flesh. Same word again. I judge no one. Yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but the Father who sent me. Wow, Jesus just says he judges no one. What does that mean? John 12, 47, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. Let me read that again, because that's what Jesus said. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Starting to see where we're going here? We're just letting Jesus explain to us what he means. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. What is it? The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Now, why would Jesus say things that unless they were in the Bible, you may not believe that they were true. Why would he say things like he is not judging or condemning anyone during his earthly ministry? Why would he say that? As we've already noted, Jesus made unvoiced moral, ethical, and spiritual judgments all the time. Every page of the Gospels, you find it. He could say that he was not judging or condemning anyone during his earthly ministry because his first coming was a ministry of salvation. His first coming was a ministry of mercy. Jesus did not come the first time to conduct the final judgment where he would separate believers from unbelievers and cast those unbelievers into eternal punishment. He didn't come to declare specifically who was and who was not condemned. He didn't need to. The business of condemnation is wrought by the word of God itself, the word that he spoke. He just mentioned that in the passages I read. And it is that word that will judge people now and will judge people on the last day at the final judgment. But Jesus himself did preach on hell and eternal judgment, didn't he? And of course, the affirmation is is, is yes, he did. Matthew 10, 28, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can uh, destroy both body and soul in hell. That's a strong warning about eternal judgment. Matthew 18, 9, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Wow, these are strong words. So Jesus does speak about hell and eternal judgment. 
But Jesus, this is what's so key, and this is how you relate that set of passages I just read from Matthew to the passages I just read in John. This is how they relate. Jesus preached about hell and eternal judgment and the fate of unbelievers as a salvific warning to draw people to salvation, to warn them about what is to come if you do not repent so that you might be able to escape that judgment. Repent and believe the gospel is how Jesus began and conducted his entire ministry. It was a ministry of calling people to himself. Preaching the horrors of hell was not an end in and of itself. Ever. It was a means to draw people to salvation. So when Jesus says, and again, I hope this is in your own minds is beginning to clear up what verse 37 and following means. When Jesus says to his disciples, judge not and Condemn not, he means that we are not to be in the business of determining the final judgment against specific unbelievers, particularly our enemies, reading it in the context, and putting people beyond the reach of God's grace. The word of God is what presently judges them and will judge them at the end of the age. Our business is to call people to repentance and faith so that they might be saved And we call them to repentance with a heart that really actually wants them to be saved. Because it might be easy to look at the unbeliever, to look at the enemy, and to have a boastful arrogance that I'm saved and you're not. And then to just talk about judgment. Not give them God's mercy. Nor should we be in the business of harboring a secret joy at other people's condemnation. This is entirely unbefitting for a believer who has tasted the mercy and the kindness of Jesus Christ. How can we who are saved by grace, pure grace, who looked at a wretched sinner, each of us should see ourselves as the worst of all sinners, how could one who has received grace and pardon freely apart from works look down and speak only judgment upon his neighbor, or delight in doing so. There are professing Christians, and we want to check ourselves here. There are professing Christians who clearly enjoy talking about the condemnation of the world and of unbelievers. You can just see it. You just, you just, you're like, boy, you kind of get off on hellfire and brimstone. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Pollyanna. Um, the preacher in that movie preaches only judgment. I'm talking about the 1960s version. I don't know if there's another version. But if you've ever seen that movie, that, the preacher in that movie only preaches judgment. And we were watching that movie last night, and, and there he is. He's in the pulpit, and I'm waiting the whole time. He's preaching all this. It was true. It was from God's word. It's from Jeremiah, hellfire and brimstone. I mean, it, you're intense, and everybody in the congregations, you know, loosening their tie because they're sweating, and everybody's... And, and I'm waiting, okay, all right, where's, where's gospel? Where's mercy? Bring the mercy. How do we get saved from this wrath? Nothing. Unfortunately, I think what that movie's doing is just throwing out a caricature of so many uh, uh, professing Christians who delight in judgment. Now, bringing God's judgment and bringing God's wrath, these are warnings that are necessary in their biblical As we see in the life of Jesus and the apostles, we've already mentioned that. It's necessary to warn of the wrath to come. 
But they, in and of themselves, those warnings of judgment are not the good news. Condemnation, by definition, is not the gospel. Condemnation, by definition, is not good news. It's, it's bad news. The good news is that there is deliverance from that judgment, deliverance from that condemnation. If I could say this, one of the best, if not the best, I, I may not... I don't know if I can say that, is verses in the Bible is Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, that's a really, really great verse. And that should be the overflow of the Christian's life. There's no condemnation. I'm not condemned. You can escape condemnation. You can escape it. You can escape it. God is good. God is merciful. You have offended him. He is angry. He is righteous. He will judge with infinite wrath for all eternity, but there is an escape. It's Jesus Christ. And you can be changed and you can be made new. So Jesus' words here are actually a warning to professing Christians who delight mainly in judgment and condemnation. Is that you? And you might be thinking, I know someone like that. And then we'd be missing the point of the passage as Jesus gets to in verse 42 and following. Do you delight in just judgment and condemnation? Is that what you like to talk about? Do you, do you pigeonhole people and say, oh, there's no hope for him? No, there's no hope for her. If you love to declare God's judgment and condemnation upon unbelievers, watch out. With the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. God will eventually give you what you delight in. The call is to be merciful as your Father is merciful. And mercy requires that we delight not in condemnation, but in salvation. And continue to offer to unbelievers, even our enemies, the gospel with a genuine desire to see them come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Listen to this word from James. James is just echoing what Jesus is teaching here. James 2.13 For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy your life a life of no mercy, then you can expect to receive no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. A true disciple will preach and share the gospel in its fullness. In no way are we advocating taking any notches off the harsh realities of those who don't turn from their sin. We have to talk about God's justice and wrath accurately from Scripture to warn people. In fact, you classify those as false teachers who don't warn appropriately and adequately, who say peace, peace when there is no peace. But we should take no joy in the unbeliever's present condemned status. We should take no joy in their future status if they maintain their obstinance against God, nor, and this is what ties into this verse, nor should we render the final judgment in our own hearts. Love hopes all things. Love believes all things. That's 1 Corinthians 13. If they are still alive, we should hope and pray for their salvation and let the Word of God do its work. And frankly, this is a great relief. This is a great relief. That's why we need to let this Word have its effect on us and stop thinking about the person sitting next to us, which I know a lot of us might be doing, right? We're thinking about our neighbor, and we're thinking about this professing Christian, and this blog post, and this guy on Twitter, whatever it might be. This is a great relief. A hard, unmerciful heart that delights only in condemnation is a burden. But a heart that is full of mercy is a great joy. It is a gift. We need this grace of God to be at work in our 
own lives. The reason why Jesus brings this important instruction about judging not and not condemning and forgiving right after he's spoken on how to love our enemies is because the natural instinct towards those who do us wrong is to, at least in our minds, if not in our words, lay out God's condemnation for them. Well, you know, they did me wrong, but they're going to get it someday. Is that the attitude? It's easy to self-righteously revel in their condemned status, in our, un, our, in our justified status, and this leads us to be unforgiving to others, particularly our enemies. But Jesus says that our forgiveness towards those who have wronged us is evidence that we are going to someday experience that full forgiveness from God at the final judgment. It's evidence. God will someday declare for all the world to see. He's not, Jesus is not saying that you have to wait for your forgiveness. You're forgiven now in Christ. But someday God is going to declare for all the world to see that you are forgiven. Our mercy towards others will extend also into generosity, a generosity that will be rewarded in the age to come. Given it will be given to you. And this is how it will be given. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. Now, in your Bibles, verse 39 probably begins a new paragraph. Verse 37 and 38 could have been and should have been probably attached to verse 36, as we saw, because it continues the thought from that passage. However, it may seem as you're reading it, maybe it occurred to you as you read it even this morning, that Jesus is beginning a different topic here. He also told them a parable. Again, I don't think that that's entirely helpful. I think we need to see this together with verses 37 and 38, verses 39 through 42 should be held together. And verses 43 and following should be attached to and held together with verses 39 through 42. And the reason we know that is because Jesus connects them in verse 43, for no good tree bears bad fruit. So he's clearly connecting that to verse 42. But I don't think we should see this here as a, in verse 39, as the beginning of something brand new. It's all connected together, as I, as I think we'll see here in a moment. We just considered Jesus' disciples and their call to conduct themselves mercifully and have a heart of mercy towards others, particularly their enemies, particularly unbelievers, but to all, including their brothers and sisters in the Lord. But he begins this now, this parable, with a, with a rhetorical question. He's so great at doing this. Jesus, the master teacher, he's going to ask you a question, get the gears of your mind going. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? And so the question, can a blind man lead a blind man? The answer to that is no, because the answer to the next question, will they not both fall into a pit, is yes. In other words, it doesn't work for a blind man to lead a blind man because that's going to end in disaster. And this would have been trenchant in, in Jesus' time. This would have made an impact because throughout the land of Israel, the land would have been pockmarked with, with attempts at drilling wells and, and digging in. I shouldn't say drilling because they didn't have drills back then, but digging in and digging deep into the soil to find water because that was the, the constant pursuit was to find water. And so the, the land would have been probably pockmarked in, in some way with these kinds of holes that would have been easy to fall into if, in fact, you were unable to see. So if 
you are unable to see, you're not going to elicit the help of another blind person. And Jesus is keying in on that reality. You're not going to find someone to lead you, nor is it wise for you as a blind person to attempt to lead another blind person. If you can't see, then you can't help someone who is also unable to see because they will, it will end in disaster. Why is that? Verse 40, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. This is a universal axiom that's true, whether it's a good teacher or a bad teacher. A disciple will become like his teacher. That's the connection that's being made, the, the, the person leading the other person. Now, that, that little parable is an illustration of what he's talking about now. A disciple is not above his teacher. This is just the reality. You will become like the person who teaches you for good or for ill. A disciple will become like his teacher. A blind teacher will lead his disciples off a disastrous spiritual cliff. But a clear-eyed teacher will lead his students to glorious spiritual vistas. You will become like your teacher. Therefore, and this is the point here, therefore the teacher must make sure that he is not a hypocrite. That means he must deal first with his own conversion and his own sin before he begins to teach others. That's the point here. And you might be thinking, well, how is this connected to judging not and condemning not? We'll see how in a moment. But Jesus is now going to illustrate the necessity of the teacher taking care of his own life before he attempts to disciple others with this graphic but humorous picture. Jesus did have a sense of humor. We should expect that from the creator who created us to have senses of humor and to laugh and to have joy. He is going to give us a comical picture, comical illustration. He says this, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out that is out of uh, that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye. So here's the imagery. You have two people. One has got a little bit of sawdust in their eye. The other person who walks in with a two-by-four sticking out of their face. You might be thinking, that sounds like a Tom and Jerry cartoon. And you'd be right. It kind of is cartoonish. It's supposed to be. It's supposed to arrest your attention, get you to kind of think a little, to laugh a little. They, this person with the two-by-four sticking out of his eye, whatever, which way. I, I tend to think it's this way, so it's, it's blocking all of his vision. You know, it's, it's just it's coming. I don't know. It just looks, looks terrible. And the humorous part of it is he sees this person, how he sees the speck. We're not even entirely sure. Maybe he's making a guess. And he's talking about the speck in this other person's eye. And it's like, this is, this is silly. And by God's good providence, we actually have a great illustration of this. Th this beam this log would actually have been a supporting beam in the roof or in the floor of a house in Jesus' day. And if you walk outside or when you walked inside and you looked up, we have that supporting beam, that massive supporting beam that's at the apex, that will be at the apex of the roof. And you have these two other beams along here. These are huge, massive beams. That's what we're talking about here. These beams are worth a million specks, aren't they? They're just huge. And this is what's sticking out of this person's eye. And just imagine, just when we walk out of here today, just look up and think of that thing sticking out of a person's uh, eyes, right? 
And then them trying to walk around as they're knocking people over, trying to tell other people how to get the speck out of their eyes. You'd just be like, whoa, look out. And he's smashing things. And like, this guy's a disaster. And, and why is he telling that person about the speck in their eye? They need to go get that stuff cut out. They're knocking people over. They're smashing out windows. They're causing destruction all over the place. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. If a passerby would come by, he would say, this is entirely unfitting for you to start talking about specks. You've got a million specks in your eye in the form of a massive beam. It, it's all clear to all of us that you should have that go, you need to have that cut out first. Now, it's comical, and there should be a little bit of humor here, but it is also deadly serious, which is exactly why Jesus says, you hypocrite. And we need to stop right here and camp out on this word. This word hypocrite was used in Jesus' day to refer to play actors and the masks that they would wear in order to play different parts on a stage. You would often find time, oftentimes find those who would play multiple different parts, up to six or more, in, in a particular acting venue, and they would put on masks in order to play a particular part. Put on one mask, take it off, come back, you're playing another part. Now, wearing that mask didn't change at all who you actually were, right? You're just playing a part. Inwardly, who you are as a person is, is the same. Putting on the mask doesn't change anything. But what it does is seems to make people perceive you in a different way. Similarly, a spiritual hypocrite is someone who doesn't really know God, but puts on a religious mask at certain times and places in order to gain a kind of spiritual gain, whether that gain is social or relational or financial. They don't really love God. They don't really love righteousness or inward holiness, but they try to make it look that way in order to impress others. And I characterize hypocrite that way. That's a strong way to characterize it, but I characterize it that way because that's how Jesus used this word exclusively in the New Testament. He used it to refer to the religious leaders whose hearts were full of sin, unbelief, and wickedness, but who worked hard to make it appear as though they were eminently righteous. So that people would praise them, even pay them for their godliness. Jesus' disciples must not be like the hypocrites. And you see this in Matthew. Just one verse here to give you a representative taste of how Jesus used this, words, this word hypocrite. Matthew 6, 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. That's how the word hypocrite is used all throughout the Gospels. A hypocrite is someone who occasionally, a hypocrite is not someone who occasionally doesn't live what he preaches. That's called hypocrisy. And all Christians will be guilty of hypocrisy now and again. That's just life in a fallen world with sinful hearts. We will not always live up to our profession. But that's different than a hypocrite. Okay? Hypocrisy is something that Christians will struggle with and seek to put to death. Being a hypocrite is someone who doesn't really know God and doesn't really have an inward faith in God, but who strives to make it appear to others that they do through their religious activity. So this is a serious charge. This is a serious statement to say to the person with a big log in their face who is looking for specks to call them a hypocrite. 
I don't think Jesus is just talking about believers dealing with the residual sin in their life. I think he's talking about here, that's certainly an application as we'll see in a moment. But he's also talking about making sure you're a converted person before you start trying to teach others. And the reason I believe that's the case is because of the way that word hypocrite is used universally throughout the Gospels, but also because Jesus connects his, te- connects his teaching there to verse 43, where he says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Jesus' illustration of the trees and their fruit is meant to teach his disciples that the fruit of a person's life is determined by their nature. Or to say it another way, the nature of a person will produce the corresponding fruit. The heart has to be changed. And he makes this connection explicitly in the following verses. Verse 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil of his heart produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Only the person who has been made good by God, who has been changed by God, who has been given a new nature by God, can produce what is good. A person who is evil can only produce what is evil. Notice how he talks, how he illustrates this spiritual truth. For each tree is known by its fruit. Verse 44, for figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. What the thorn bush needs most desperately is not for someone to staple figs to it, as though that would change anything. What that thorn bush needs is to be transformed into a fig tree. What an evil person needs is not some external religious works added to their life, but their whole nature to be changed by the Spirit of God through the new birth. The blind teacher with the log in his eye is in need of conversion. Another reason I believe he's talking about that conversion is not only the word hypocrite, but also because he's relating it to this blindness. At the very least, Jesus is telling his disciples to not be like the hypocrites or that when you are seeking out to identify the sins of others without taking care of your own heart first and foremost and most often, then you are acting like the hypocrites who don't know God. The call of this passage, and here's where we're getting to the heart of things. The call of this passage call of verses 42 and following and bumping back up to verses 38 and following is a call for self-examination. You know, some of us might be afraid of self-examination because we don't want it to lead to gross introspection. Some of us maybe tend towards introspection more than others. But Scripture certainly calls us to self-examination. The temptation, I know, I know it was here for some of you today because I know my own heart. The temptation is to hear this message about the removal of logs and to think immediately of somebody else. That's just the human heart. The hard work has to be done to hear this word and apply it first and foremost to remove the log from our eye. When you are first and foremost about the work of your own heart and your own sin and your own unbelief. It will create, and here's the connection, it will create in you a spiritual ability to rightly identify sin in others. And you will do it, how? Mercifully, graciously, with clear spiritual 
vision. But I want us to see that self-examination is not the end game. As though introspection is all we should be about. There's a reason why we should be first and foremost dealing with our own hearts. First and foremost dealing with our own sin. First and foremost dealing with our own unbelief. It is so that, and here, here it is. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. The purpose of that heart work is to eventually lead you to effective, gracious ministry to others. That's why you take the log out of your own eye, so that you can be a true benefit to others. It doesn't stop with introspection. It doesn't stop with self-examination. That's exactly why we said when Jesus says in verse 37, he's, he's not, in judge not, he's not saying to suspend moral judgment. What he's saying is work on your heart through the power of the Spirit in such a way that you are able to see clearly to make right judgments. To have a heart that doesn't immediately want to condemn others. But that deals rightly with our brother's sin. That deals rightly with the speck in other people's eyes. Now, notice the fruit in verse 45. He says, The good person out of the good treasure of his own heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And again, we should be able to see the connections here between this passage and the previous passage. It's words from the mouth and the heart that are precisely the issue of verse 37. Right? Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. He's talking about words. He's talking about heart attitude right there, isn't there? Isn't he? A mouthful of judgment and condemnation towards others, whether it's fellow believers, whether it's enemies, just unbelievers in general, is an indication that our heart is full of judgment and condemnation. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is not good treasure. This is not good fruit. That's why it is so concerning when we come across professing Christians who are full of self-righteous judgment and condemnation towards others, and why we should be so concerned when we see it in ourselves. There are some who make a business out of proffering self-righteous judgment against just about everyone. But even before we can note that kind of thing, we have to note our own hearts and our own tendency to making self-righteous judgment and leveling condemnation and thinking hateful thoughts towards others that we're happy to just hand out death and judgment to everyone we meet. On the other hand, positively, and here's, here's the glory of it. On the other hand, those who have dealt with the log in their eye, who have humbled themselves before Christ, who have recognized they are God's enemy and have experienced the wonder of God's mercy in the gospel, are those who then extend mercy to others and who aren't full of self-righteous judgment and condemnation. Really, it is the case. As I was studying this passage this week and beginning again afresh to see how necessary it is to deal with Derek's heart first, I found not only great remorse, but great joy. Because God is so wise to use these words to deliver us from the burden of a heart that is full of judgment and condemnation towards others. Because we've dealt with the log in our own eye, 
we are able now to have the spiritual clarity to make legitimate, well-grounded, truthful, righteous judgments about the specks in our brother's eye. The person who deals first and foremost with their conversion and their sin will have a kind of spiritual clarity that sees reality for how it really is. And that's what we need if we're going to talk to others about their sin and the hope of the gospel. You will be able to see the sins of your brothers and sisters for what they really are and to be able to help them with appropriate grace and truth. Isn't it interesting that Jesus is characterized by grace and truth? Isn't it interesting that that is the balance that we are called to hold in this life? You are not merely gracious where you never speak a word, but nor are you only truthful and ever offering grace. So the question is for us, is what is our heart disposition towards others? Is it one of love and compassion and forgiveness and generosity? Or is it one of judgment and condemnation, anger and stinginess? That's the call today from Jesus. Do you see mainly the sins and faults of others, but do not see your own faults and sins? Here's what's interesting, and just see if this rings true with you. Typically, What's interesting about a judgmental spirit is that we typically see in other person's sins our own sins. The first sins that we recognize in others are usually the sins that we are struggling with. Just, just test yourself. I tested myself that, with that this week, and I just kind of thought of, like, what are the sins I typically notice soonest and quickest in other people? And I just started to think, Oh my goodness, those are the sins that I'm guilty of. Those are the sins that creep up in my heart the most often. In other words, we see and condemn our sins in other people. If we are characterized by a judgmental, fault-finding, sin-hunting spirit, then we are simply not spiritually healthy. The spiritually healthy heart is a merciful heart. It's a love-believes-all-things heart. It's a heart that upholds the truth of God's justice and righteousness and his wrath and judging mankind for their evil. And as soon as you get that out, you're so ready to talk about the mercy and grace of Christ to rescue from condemnation because you've tasted that yourself. And again, this is to, to reaffirm what I said at the very beginning. When Jesus says, judge not and you will not be judged and the looking forward to not being judged by God and not being condemned by God. This is not affirming salvation by works. And another reason we know that is verse 43 and following. He's talking about the fruit that flows out of the tree. The tree itself has been made good and therefore produces good fruit. But this kind of life can only serve as evidence of future reward if you are first made a good tree. That's his point in verse 43. That's an important message, and it's a message that will carry over into next week's passage. You must be born again. We must be born again. This burden of a self-righteous, condemning heart can only be finally removed through the new covenant and that gracious work of God to give us a new heart, to cleanse us it's not enough to begin to trying, try hard to judge less or try hard to condemn less. That would be the world's approach. You could start a blog. You could start a YouTube channel to helping people. Here's how to just judge less and condemn less. It's not enough. 
That would be like stapling figs on a thorn bush in the hopes that when the farmer comes along, he's fooled into thinking that you're really a fig tree. It, it just wouldn't work, would it? It won't work with a farmer, and it won't work with God. We need the mercy of Jesus Christ. We need the mercy of Christ to, to forgive us, to change us, so that then we can begin to live this kind of life. Inwardly, deep down, who we really are apart from Christ is that we despise God and His law. We actually have an entire forest of sin in our eyes, and we deserve judgment. But God sent His own Son in the frailty, frailty of human nature to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus Christ loved God, and He loved His neighbor perfectly. Not merely as an example, but he did that in your place. Jesus wasn't a hypocrite. Jesus was whole. What he said, he did. What he did, he truly felt. He was whole. So that he might save us and forgive us and make us like him. And if you don't know him today, you can't attempt to judge not and condemn not enough. You need Christ and his forgiveness. He calls all sinners to come to him. He's provided everything you need for your salvation. And he will then transform you into a good tree, a tree that bears the fruit of mercy, that bears the fruit of kindness, honesty, forgiveness, and generosity. A life that is coupled with hard affection for the lost, but also a commitment to the truth, this, this balance of grace and truth that we see in Jesus. He now is filling out in his people. That's what he offers you in himself and in the gospel. Those of us who do know this mercy of, of Christ, let us learn to first deal with our own hearts, to do the hard heart work in our hearts to remove those logs, those beams, those sins, that unbelief by God's grace so that, that we can then offer that same mercy and grace to others. Let's ask for God's help and do this by God's grace. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you for Jesus' words here. Judge not, condemn not. They should have a deep effect on the believer. They should have a deep effect on our own hearts that we would not be self-righteous and harsh and mean. That we not delight in condemnation, but we delight in mercy. Yes, we must preach the truth of hell and your judgment. But, oh God, we would be wrong to not immediately follow up with grace and mercy that has been clearly displayed in the cross of Jesus Christ. Would you help us to walk in grace and truth, following our Savior? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.